0: 14 years ago, Joseph Bottom wrote a book called An Anxious Age, and I think the title was a little bit early. Wouldn't you say right now we are living in the anxious age? A a volatile point in American history at least, maybe global history, certainly global history. Our politics divide us. Our Our airports are full because of COVID relief, imagine that. Gasoline, is, has you, have you noticed it's gone up in price? <laughs> Cryptocurrencies are collapsing. Inflation is marching forward. There is a war in Ukraine. The pullout of Afghanistan, and China, and Taiwan. There's a fence around our Supreme Court. More than one commentator has pondered uh, and questioned the viability of the union with the division that will come after the uh, end of Roe v. Wade. It's an anxious age. And we come together in this room, week by week, to worship God. As if we have all of this stuff over here, and the sovereign, majestic, all-powerful God over here. Now, I want us to hear God's Word. And if your Bible is available, turn to Psalm 36. And we're going to listen to this polarity right in the psalm. Psalm 36, verse 1. The psalmist says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed and sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep, man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love? The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. And so, Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you would be our teacher, but more, we ask that you would use your word in such a way that you would become our delight. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, so we, in, in, in light of all the stuff that's over here that causes us anxiety, we worship a God who is sovereign. Who the scripture tell tells us can move the heart of kings like water in his hands. Who spoke the universe into existence. Let there be light. And there was what? Light. Yeah. Who, who put to death 185,000 troops that were out to get King Hezekiah. Put them to death overnight. That kind of a God. The God who is not pleased with the sons of Korah. And he causes an earthquake and the, the earth swallows them up. A God who can cause an axe head to float. A God who can make water into wine. A God who can make a man walk who's never walked. A God who can feed 5,000 with one lunch. By the way, you know what he did? He had a little pause in his preaching. He said, if you want to sign up for lunch, go over there. And, uh, and then he said, I'll take care of it. A God whom Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 causes all things to work in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now, as a church, we are spending a few weeks gleaning uh, from the Psalms. And we come to Psalm 36. It's not always on the greatest hits list of those who uh, meditate on the Psalms. It's a little bit confusing, so much so that commentators are not quite sure how to categorize it. I bet you've lost a lot of sleep over that truth. (laughs) But we're not sure if it's a lament psalm, or a psalm of confidence, or a call to worship. But what is clear in the psalm is that of contrast. Derek Kidner put it like this, a glimpse of human wickedness at its most malevolent and a glimpse of divine goodness in its many-sided fullness. At once, the psalm shows us the depth of our sinful heart and then turns a corner and shows us the goodness and the sovereignty of God. It, It should blow our minds a little bit. It's as if we go from Romans 3 where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We go right from there to Christ welcoming us as his friends. The one who gave himself up for us because he loved us. Now, the psalm falls into three paragraphs. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it works. But uh, in verses 1 to 4, we have the way of the fallen heart. In verses 5 to 9, the way of God's heart. And then in verses 10 to 12, the way of the redeemed heart. So, let's look at those uh, in, in turn. First of all, the way of the fallen heart. How does the fallen heart Work well. There's a sevenfold description of the fallen heart: no fear of God, self-flattery, evil words, no wise living, uh, plotting of trouble even on your bed. That's when you're supposed to be asleep, and and when your conscience might be soft. But no, you still plot evil on your bed. Uh, You set your way in a uh, in a way that is not good, and you don't even reject evil. That's the way of the fallen heart. That is David's uh, version of Romans 1 to 3. He said it a little more quickly than Paul did. Now when you read those verses, don't think of Vladimir Putin, or Jelaine Maxwell, or R. Kelly, the disgraced rapper. Think of the person you see in the mirror in the morning. The psalmist speaks to each of our own hearts, to what they are like, and what they would be like if we were left to our own sinful nature without the work of God in us. I like what the Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev said. He said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. did you see the psychology the downward spiral of sin look at your bibles first comes a person trying sin out and experiencing no pain felt pretty good remember hebrews eleven twenty-five, 25 that the pleasures of sin for a season that that's what's going on right here i was just in africa i got to throw in at least one africa story but uh, in Africa, the water is bad. You just, When you take a shower, you keep your lips closed, and you don't drink the water. But one day in Sudan, South Sudan, it was very hot, and we came back to a hotel room, and, and I was really thirsty, and there was no water in the room. And I turned that water on, and I filled up a glass, and I looked at it, and I thought, man, this looks like water. <laughs> and I held, held it up to the light. I could see no bad things in it. So I drank three glasses. No, I didn't. <laughs> but that's what sin is like. You say, it looks like water. It tastes like water. Let me have a glass. Let me have it. I, I feel great. Now, you've got to wait six hours before you find out if the water was good. So also with sin, we find it exciting, satisfying. We reason so far, so good. I think I'll keep going with this. Second, look at verse 2. This person, this kind of every person is what's being described, loses fear and then infers, because God has not given me any immediate judgment, there must be none. I was a pastor for 39 years in the same church, Santa Barbara Community Church. We just prayed for that church. And, And sadly, more than once, I had someone come to me and tell me that they were either beginning an extramarital affair or were firmly entrenched in an extramarital affair and we would talk and I I heard these lines too many times, this affair makes me feel so alive. I have never been happier in the last decade than I am right now and the big one Read. you tell me this is wrong, but I have never felt closer to God. Well, that's the calculus here. God hasn't judged me. It must be okay. The third step in verse 3 is a greater devotion to sin. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Rebellion gathers momentum. Sin is a cumulus... Cumulative crisis, it's never satisfied. And it ends up, in verse 4, with a a comprehensive commitment. When our conscience is tender at night, this person is still plotting evil. I like what the Orthodox priest Patrick Henry Reardon says of this passage. He says, man does not simply fall into evil. You don't fall off of a curb and land on somebody and commit adultery. (laughs) It <laughs> doesn't work that way. We don't fall into evil. His perversity is a veritable project of His mind. The object of an intentional strategy. The passage stands as a warning to those of us disposed to regard our failings as merely symptoms of weakness. No, the Scriptures tell us that we plan these things and we run towards them. And do you know that Paul in Romans 3 actually quotes a line from this passage? Uh, If you haven't looked at it from this light sometime today, look at Romans 3. And Paul lists all the verses that your Sunday school teacher never had you memorize, all in one place. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's kind of the worst, greatest hits of the Old Testament. He's trying to paint a portrait that we all have a need of a redeemer. And he says, no one's righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. And he just keeps going like that with the conclusion from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin is is not just weakness. It is that. But sin is outright rebellion against our Creator, against God and the things of God. It's an infection that spreads to every molecule in our body and in our soul. Now, at this point, if, if, if I were reading this psalm and didn't know what number it was and had no context, I would think, well, now the writer's going to tell me about the righteous man. We know Psalms like that, where there's a a contrast between the sinful man and the righteous person. Not here. The second paragraph speaks of the way of God's heart. The way of the fallen heart, and now the way of God's heart. And it ought to blow our little Presbyterian minds. (laughs) Because after all that sin, you'd expect God to say, now I'm going to get you. And what does it say? Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Wow. God, the all-glorious God, the creator of the universe, the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is one God in pure holiness, sovereign, sufficient, the one who will not tolerate sin, the God who one day will judge all evil, that God meets us not with passive resignation not with a disinterested glance but what's it say steadfast love it covenant love family love personal love okay so a couple weeks ago uh, we celebrated the 70th year of the reign of some monarch who was that yeah queen of england what what a deal no one's offered her another job, I guess, but... But, you know, she came to Santa Barbara. You Anybody, anybody here when she came to Santa Barbara? Do you know the date? Ross. March 1st, 1983. And she was here to see Ronald Reagan. He was president of the United States, younger people. <laughs> and, and they were up at Reagan Ranch, and they came, the, the motorcade came down and got off at Mission Street off of 101, came under the freeway and turned right on Castillo. The reason I know this is because my brother lived right there and he just happened to walk out and he claims, you never know if he's lying <laughs> because his lips are moving. So, And the great thing is he doesn't even know he's lying. He just wanted it to be true. But, um, but anyway, he says, the Queen waved at me. And he, would, he, 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 to this day, would say the Queen of England waved at him in his front yard. Okay, let's, let's give him the story. How much do you think the queen thinks about my brother today, for example? <laughs> In other words, that was just kind of that royal wave, and you're just one of the subjects of another kingdom that we lost a war to a long time ago. <laughs> Not our God. Did you catch the multidimensional push of God's love? It's up. Your steadfast love, it goes up to the heavens, up to the clouds. It's out. Your righteousness, it's like the mountains of God, probably a reference to the mountains that are surrounding Jerusalem, and it's down. Your judgment, down, down, down. Look at verse seven, the children of mankind, literally the children of men, This is not a reference to Israel or to the elect or to the faithful. This is a reference to all humanity. God's love is everywhere and it is for everyone. It's in the Bible. All humanity is caught up in this what we call common grace. Psalm 145 verse 9, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus says that his Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the unrighteous and the righteous. And here, all humanity takes refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 in the city of Athens God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So, Every person that you see that's created in God's image is a recipient of God's common grace. That means when anyone eats or drinks or laughs at an appropriate joke or smells some good fragrance or sees a beautiful sunset or a great work of art, every moment of conversation and laughter is a consequence of God's grace in our lives. All of these things show that God's steadfast love is all around us. Humanity hides in the shadow of God's wings. Humanity feasts on the abundance of God's house. Humanity drinks from the river of God's delight. So, paragraph one, the fallen heart is in rebellion against God. Paragraph two, the way of God's heart, well, it is to shower His blessing on everyone. But the third paragraph brings it all together. It's the way of the redeemed heart. Would you look at verse 10 with me and maybe memorize it this week? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. The psalm moves us to a prayer to God, asking God to cause us to delight in God. A prayer for God to keep the psalmist and to keep us in the blessing of God. Don't let me wander. Don't let me stray. Don't let me dawdle. Keep after me, Lord. Lisa and I are at the age where we are having friends in our own age bracket, (laughs) mid-30s, that have known Christ ostensibly for 20, 30, 40 years. And we're tragically watching some of our friends walk away from the faith. I never would have thought that we would see some of the things we've seen in the last four years. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. This prayer is the opposite of the way of the wicked. It's the opposite of the way of the religious. It doesn't say try hard. It doesn't say think good thoughts. It doesn't say go back to church and increase your giving. It doesn't say, you know, do a whole bunch of good deeds. All those are good ideas, by the way. The psalmist doesn't say to God, okay, God, give me discipline while I'm in my bed so I won't plan bad things. No, 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 no. It's a very simple prayer that God will keep us, keep me, keep the psalmist in His blessing. That we will stay in the sphere of God's steadfast love. Well, end of Bible study. What do you think God wants us to do with this? I, want to, I hope you remember one thing. Main point here. This psalm invites us to delight ourselves in God by invitation. It's a little complicated, let me say it again. This psalm invites us to delight ourselves in God by invitation. In other words, we invite God to compel in us a delight of God. The remedy to the sin of the first four verses is not discipline, but delight, relationship, tender-hearted covenant love, where we are invited to cry to the Heavenly Father, Abba. Delight. Just look at verse 9. An amazing, just one after another, you're the fountain of life, you give us drink from the river of delight, as if to say, drink. In your light, do we see light, as if to say, see Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart as if to say, bask, dwell. The psalmist seems to be asking us, why would you persist in fruitless transgressions when infinite delight is yours from the Father? So, what would it mean if God answered that prayer? What would it mean if we all prayed that prayer maybe every day for the next 20 years and God answered? But we've already seen in a sense that the children of mankind enjoy the steadfast love of God. They take up refuge in the shadow of His wings and so on. So what would it mean if God answered this prayer for us? it would mean that you and I would experience the sweetness of knowing God in an ever deepening relationship that we would not only know but we would sense and feel the greatness of God Christ Presbyterian Church would not be like the church of Ephesus. You remember that letter Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus? Remember? He said, you're doing a lot of really good things. You got this and that program, and you're doing this and that. I'm very impressed, Jesus says. But I have this against you. You lost your first love. If God answered this prayer in your life and in my life and in our church, He would never write that letter to our church. It would mean that God's love would be experienced, felt, enjoyed, relished, savored. So Monday uh, was my 41st wedding anniversary. Personal best. And Lisa and I have had a marvelous marriage. She's with the kids right now, so I can say anything I want and she won't know. But um, she was living with her family in Rochester, New York, and I was living in Santa Barbara trying to plant a church, and, and it came time to go get married. And I got in my little Volkswagen bus that had about four horsepower and drove across the country. On the odometer, it was 3,003 miles. I just happened to remember that. The last day of the drive, I mean, boom, 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 you know, it had air conditioning, you just roll the windows down, the air comes in, it was great. But, but the last day I drove, I got right at first light, and I drove till midnight, and I got there. Uh, 75 Clover Hills Drive Rochester, New York and there she was and she said Reed, you drove too long today it's very dangerous why did you do it? I said, well it's my duty I had a duty to do it now I need to go to bed where's my bedroom? (laughs) do you think I said that? I said not it's my duty I said, Lisa I would have driven until sunup to be with you. You are the most beautiful woman in the world, and you make me happier than anybody else. And driving from Santa Barbara to Rochester was like a mere jaunt to Carpinteria. (laughs) In other words, I couldn't stay away. The attraction was so great. My friends, if we pray this prayer, we are asking God to show us His beauty, His greatness. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beautiness beauty and holiness of his grace. You see the difference? There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet. I mean you could probably go to MIT in Boston and say describe for me why honey is sweet and some smart PhD student could probably tell you why honey is sweet. Edward says, there's a huge difference between that and sticking your finger in the honey jar and tasting the sweetness of the honey. And Psalm 36 is inviting us to the latter. We will come to God and flee our transgressions if and only if we are convinced that my greatest delight is in God. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He uh, gave a, a sermon during World War II. And he said something so profound. He said, when we consider the promises made in the Gospels and the unblushing rewards promised, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and ambition and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. He said, we're like an, uh, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he concludes that Paragraph, he says, We are far too easily pleased. Psalm 36 calls us to bask in and enjoy God Himself by invitation. When we pray this prayer, verse 10, we're saying, Lord, i'm so half-hearted i need your help even to see your greatness would you guide me would you guard me would you bring me closer in now the psalm becomes concrete concrete fountain of life remember a guy who said i'm the water i'm the living water drink And your light, do we see light? Remember the the one who said, I'm the light of the world. Continue in your steadfast love to those who know you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Let me give you one tip how to do this, besides praying this, this verse over and over again. Again, it comes from Jonathan Edwards. He says, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. Put yourself in a place where you will see the beauty and the greatness of God. Create habits around that, worshiping with God's people, spending time in God's word, listening to great music, whatever it is place yourself in the way of allurement and then come into this greatness of the God that we worship and find in him your supreme delight. Let's pray. God, we do pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for your glory and for our joy. Amen.